Armed American Radio listeners, today's Armed American Radio's recorded version of the national radio broadcast, the Armed American Radio podcast, is being brought to you today and every day by North American Arms. Make sure to visit NorthAmericanArms.com for the finest mini revolvers on planet Earth. NorthAmericanArms.com. Enjoy the show. Defense. Armed American Radio's daily defense, because they don't want me to, that's why I do it. Presented by X-Insurance. X-Insurance. From the Sig Sauer Studios, on the Daniel Defense Platinum Microphone. They're never going to stop us here. Here is your host, the loudest conservative voice in America fighting the enemies of freedom, Mark Walters. Well, the loudest voice is in Las Vegas, so... He has, uh, he has allowed me to come in and join you today. My name is Bill Frady. I am the host of Lock and Load, and I am also uh, a buddy of Mr. Walters. I spoke with him today on my local radio show, and uh, it was the first day of SHOT Show, so I don't really know um, how things are going yet because he hasn't been able to get around, and my understanding is this is acres and acres and acres of stuff this year. So, And it's cold, even though you don't have to go outside. Very cold out there. So... Let us begin, shall we? Uvalde. Whenever we we need to negotiate into uh, into a position where we these these places that want to restrict your ability to carry a firearm into them for your own personal defense, if they want to restrict that, then they need to be held accountable for the safety and the security of the people that are inside their gun free zone haven. And we don't see that yet, but we need to see that. Now, Scott, you know, I look at what happened, and I talked about this yesterday, and I'm, I'm just flabbergasted at this report that came out and how we're just sort of sitting there and just taking it, and we, we, we don't seem to be able to learn from any of this stuff. And here's the problem. See, this is the thing about rampage killers. We know what rampage killers are and what they do. We know this because we have studied them extensively, despite the fact, you know, despite the fact that we haven't done anything about it. And I mean, this is not something new, as a matter of fact, right? I mean, if you can, you could go to Police One, policeone.com, and they put out an article in October of 2015, the five phases of the active shooter, a tactical reload sub uh, subheader. We must energize and educate the public on how they can prevent these shootings by watching for certain common behaviors these killers exhibit. None of these people, for the most part, are going to exist in a vacuum. They basically, they, they have five phases. The fantasy phase. This is when they're daydreaming. This is their Walter Mitty uh, level here where they're, you know, they, they, they're looking to achieve a historical level of carnage. Sometimes they'll draw pictures of it or write it out, you know. And this demon who has no empathy for anybody else, he's very likely to share his thoughts and feelings with someone else. Now, if this were to actually, if this information would be worked on, maybe we could stop one of these things before it happens. 
Second phase is the planning phase. The potential killer lays out who, what, when, where, and how, and why this is his plan. In other words, he will document who he will kill, what he will use to accomplish these murders, and when, where, and how the slaughter will take place. And they may even write down the reasons for what they're going to do. Finding the plan on a hard drive or in a hard copy form before the event would ensure the plan would never come to fruition. But very li- in most cases, they don't actually surface in time. Then we're in the middle of the in the in the middle of the plan, the preparation phase. This is uh, they've got to gather the items they need to succeed. They have to buy or steal the stuff they need to deliver death and destruction. And they're also going to do a recon of the scene they intend to uh, visit all of this violence upon. This can be an opportunity for a family member, a citizen, a school employee, or a police officer to notice this. Number four is the approach phase. This is the last moment that this could maybe be stopped without some sort of a kinetic, you know, reprisal. If you notice somebody dressed for combat, for example, approaching a school or a hospital or a mall or a theater or a church carrying a weapon or weapons, like in Uvalde when we saw that guy walking to it carrying a weapon, this is where they could use a Terry stop to... uh, maybe sort short circuit this situation those are the four phases that can prevent if we can catch the rampage killer in those four phases that would be a preventable moment the fifth phase is the implementation there is no more luxury of intervening in this particular event without bloodshed because this guy has gone live. He is uh, he's shooting. Uh, and they're going for the top score. And in that moment, what is needed is an immediate, effective, hyper-violent act of courage. Time is the enemy of... Uh, time is the enemy of anybody there that's innocent... The longer this rampage killer is allowed to go uninterrupted, he will kill. And whichever gunfighter gets involved in this, this is not one of those things where we have to be honorable or fair or any of these other things. We roll up, we take the first shot available, and we shoot till the threat is done. One other thing to consider is that in 62% of the uh in 62% of these instances where the unarmed victims fight back, they win. Now there's going to be a lot of things that come into play with that like distance. How close are you to the guy? How how you know, how distracted is he? And, but in 62% of those instances, the unarmed vic would be victim can win. So even immediate aggressive action by an unarmed opponent can save them. So that's that's what stalks our schoolrooms today. That kind of a person that goes through those five phases 
of evolution before. Well, they go through four phases of evolution, and then they implement it. And then the only thing that can be done to stop what's going on is to blow them out of their socks. So, as I say this, the one thing that I take away from this is that right now in uh, Uvalde, they still don't uh, allow teachers to be armed. And the problem with Uvalde is that they Uvalde left it all to this police department. There were no plans in place for you know what was going on inside the school. And that was a, you know, that was a, that, that proved to be a really big issue. There was, as far as I remember, there's one off-duty cop that tried to go in and uh, they would not let him in. And it was the cops that were outside that would not let anybody go inside and, and deal with this. If I had a child in school today, I would be going to the school and I would be respectfully asking the administrators there, do you have designated security personnel assigned to this school? And if so, are they armed or slash unarmed? And where I live, they have school resource officers. And unfortunately, here, the school resource officers are police officers who have spent their entire distinguished career, and now they're on the downward slope just waiting till they retire. They're not athletes anymore. They're not somebody that can respond quickly. And the big issue with using school resource officers is they're often scattered, and they're known. Where they are is no. In Columbine, they had school resource officers, and they got lured out and then locked out of the school by Thomas and Klebold. So, ultimately, ultimately, the responsibility is going to lay with whomever declares this to be a gun-free zone. And that's really what we should be insisting upon. You don't want me to be armed. You don't want me to be in a position to defend myself. That's fine. What have you got in place if something goes sideways while I'm here buying socks? And if I can't answer that, then you probably need to reconsider where you're going to buy your socks. That's, you know, it's a very simple thing. It's a very simple thing. We'll be right back. This is... uh, Daily Defense. I'm Bill Frady. Hang on. Defense firearms are guaranteed for life, trusted worldwide, and designed, engineered, and manufactured right here in America. Daniel Defense, freedom, passion, precision. Indeed. And they just came out with a handgun, too. Mark was telling me about that this morning, the H9. I'm sure you'll hear about that soon. Recently, uh, there was this case out of Indianapolis. And it is uh, the worst case scenario. An 11-year-old got, in their own words, got a hold of a gun and shot himself in the throat 
And instead of campaigning for more basic gun safety education for young people, the grieving family wants the state of Indiana to require that other gun owners lock up their safety implements in their homes. Now, let's understand a few things. Guns are a mystique item. People see them on TV. Children see them in all kinds of media all over the country, all over the place. Even the anti-gunners use them in their uh, quote-unquote entertainment vehicles. So the very first thing that anybody should do with a child that is old enough to understand is to impress upon them that this is a really dangerous item and take away the mystique of this weapon. That's what I did. When my first son was, oh gosh, he must have been four months old, My uh, one of my uncles handed him one of these percussion pistols that was just bigger than he was. And he looked at it with a little bit of interest, but he, he didn't even really know what he was looking at. But over the course of time, we continued to do this until he had no mystique of these. He would not pick them up. Having said that, of course, I never left them out where he could find them. I secured them, you know. Because I've got children. Because I'm his parent. And I don't want him to get a hold of it. So, there's a lot of questions that goes with this particular instance that I'm not even sure if we know. Uh, who did this gun belong to? Was the person that owned the gun a prohibited person? Why did they leave a loaded firearm where an 11-year-old had access to it? Now, these are all very relevant questions, but instead of looking at that, the Indy Star profiles the family and their quest to mandate people lock up their guns under penalty of law. Now, this is the safe storage, you know, trope that they, they're, they're trotting out there. And uh, from the Indianapolis Star, we get this headline, 100% preventable, Indiana kills... Indiana kids killed by unsecured guns hits record. Would new laws help? No, it would not. Because the only way to uh, enforce safe storage is to be able to go into somebody's house unannounced and see if they have a gun safe and where everything's at, which is a violation of the Fourth Amendment. And in some cases, maybe the Fifth and in some cases, maybe the 14th. I don't know. I slept through all of my constitutional scholar classes. This young man's name is Jordan Robertson. He died August the 20th, 2023. And uh, they revealed he got, I, where, where do we get this term? Got a hold of a gun, then accidentally shot and killed himself. He was entering the sixth grade. Now, first things first, obviously the young man knew nothing about these because he pointed it at himself somehow. He muzzled himself. He had the business end of the barrel aimed at his neck. Strike one. Now, before his tragic death, he was doing what many kids do as the summer winds to a close. They went to a friend's house to get in some hangout time, and sixth grade was around the corner. But somehow or other, an unsecured loaded gun in the home on East Market Street. Now, was this his friend's house? Was this his house? I don't know. 
uh, a, a loaded weapon was picked up by the friends. And along the way, the trigger was pulled. The bullet struck him, killing him. His death was reported as an accidental self-inflicted shooting. Now, of course, then we begin the imagery, which, you know, I'm going to say this, and uh, I fully understand this. When something like this happens, there's no closure for that family. Of course, the bereavement will be played upon, and it will be used against you and me and my rights, but... The bereavement, there, there's no uh, there's no closure for this. And I'm sure there was all kinds of imagery of an empty chair at the table, right? And at the birthday parties, no, you know, he's not there for his birthday party. His uncle, David Barnes, said the family felt something else, a need to act. And in the months since the shooting, he and his relatives have met with Indiana legislators to see how they can prevent another family from going through the same. Now, they're going for what they see as a solution. But once again, it's unenforceable. Laws on the books that would prosecute gun owners who don't properly store their weapons. This legislation, well, like, like I said, it's called Safe Storage or Child Access Prevention Laws. That's in place in half of the United States. But here's the thing. You can't, you can't mandate good parenting you can't mandate personal responsibility and for those who would strip you and me of our rights and ability to defend ourselves gun control is a reliable answer freedom is scary for them so what happens when they mandate that you take your weapon and you separate your ammunition from it, then you put it under lock and key. What what uh, what happens when they do this? Well, we have some examples of that, too, from the New York Post. A naked madman who hated children burst into an isolated California farmhouse and brutalized five kids, slaying two of them with a pitchfork before cops broke in and shot him dead. They stormed in the house and shot Jonathan David Bruce 13 times after three of the youngsters escaped through a window, ran to a neighbor's house, and dialed 911. a Carpenter, 13, said as she described how Bruce turned her home into a house of horrors, he looked possessed. Authorities said there's no connection between Bruce, 27, who had a 1999 uh, arrest for drugs and fighting with the cops, and the Carpenter family, and couldn't find a reason why he broke into their home. And Adams, a one-time neighbor, one-time neighbor of Bruce, said the former telemarketer hated kids and often yelled at his girlfriend's three children. They have safe storage there. And the only reason that uh, Jessica, uh, you know, got away was because he couldn't break through the door. And uh, she managed to call 911. And they got there. But, hey, they'd taken steps to make sure there was nothing loaded around them. I don't know. We'll be right back.
following segment of Armed American Radio is being brought to you by Defender Coffee. When you drink Defender Coffee, you're making a donation to a gun rights organization of your choice that protects and defends your freedoms. Welcome back to the show. So I'm sitting here and I'm uh, trying to execute the show as best I can so that your so Mark's audience is, uh, you know, gets to have that as seamless as we can make it. Uh, sense of continuity. Mark is busy sending me text messages with pictures of guns that he's examining at the moment. Which just sort of stirs up a little bit of envy in certain people. Greg, do you carry a gun? Do you get envious when people show you things that you may find nice like that? Does it does it sort of distract you from perhaps your perceived mission of trying to do a radio show without a bunch of clutter in your head? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah, he's sending he's he's busy he's busy sending me all the pictures of all the new stuff. So and there's a few new things out there. I kind of thought there wouldn't be too much new stuff, but I digress. Here we are. Uh, recently, a, a Florida federal district court restored the right to keep and bear arms on the USPS property. They ruled a statute banning the possession of guns on that property dating from 1972 was unconstitutional under the Second Amendment, which I think that's splendid because when I'm carrying a gun, which is every time, if I've got on pants, i got a gun. Uh, and it doesn't even matter what kind of pants. I have holsters that carry in sweatpants. I have holsters that carry in pants with a belt that would hold up a Dodge Ram and everything in between. So when I'm carrying a gun and I go someplace and I get there and I look at the sign here in South Carolina, which has the force of law, I have to make a choice. Do I go in anyway? Do I uh, leave? Or do I go back to the car and take the gun off? Now, to me, that's always a risky proposition to take your weapon and leave it in your vehicle. So anytime somebody can get out there, and like for me, when I go to the United States post office, most of the time it's to ship something or to pick something up or to buy some stamps or something, something that I can't normally do otherwise, which is not very often, but sometimes I do have to go in there. And I appreciate that. Now, I don't know if this means that I could just go in there now and carry a gun, help, you know, willy-nilly however I like it or whatever, but uh, whatever it's meaning, right, this has recently come down. Now, there has been a statement aimed at the employees of the United States Postal Service, and we get this. A recent Florida District Court decision is being misreported or may be misinterpreted as holding that the Postal Service ban on carrying firearms, either openly or concealed or storing them on USPS property, is unconstitutional. In fact, the case dealt with a different federal statute and does not involve the Postal Service's regulation. Therefore, it does not change the organization's policy. Employees are reminded that carrying or storing firearms, other dangerous or deadly weapons, or explosives, either openly or concealed, on USPS properties prohibited and can result in discipline up to and including removal from the Postal Service as well as potential prosecution. Now, there used to be a, a time back in the 70s and maybe the early 80s when uh, we, we had this term called going postal. And uh, 
there was a moment when a lot of post office employees were, you know, shooting post offices up. But this has been in place in, in, since 1972. Now, we get this from the Federal News Network. The Postal Service regulates its facilities for the safety, economy, and convenience of customers, employees, and employees engaged in postal business nationwide. One Postal Service regulation in this regard prohibits the, prohibits the possession or storage of firearms on real property under the charge and control of the Postal Service, and that regulation was upheld by a federal court of appeals in 2015. We are evaluating the interplay between our regulation and the recent interpretation of the broader federal criminal statute and determining the appropriate next steps. This case is uh, Boniti versus uh, USPS, and it was decided in the Tenth Circuit during the period when several circuits were actively working to gut the Second Amendment. Their preferred method at the time was to limit the Heller and McDonald decisions as applying only in the home and as being subject to intermediate scrutiny. But from the Tenth Circuit, we got this. We have jurisdiction under 28 U.S.C. and conclude that the regulation is constitutional as to all USPS property at issue in the case. So they, they looked at it. And this, was, this was during a time before Bruin. You know, after Heller was written, for example, there were so many doors left open for Heller that they could get in there and interpret things a lot. They, they had a very broad avenue of uh, interpretation. So, and this was very shortly after Antonin Scalia passed away as well. <laughs> so, uh, and, and during the time, from Gunwatch, it was uh, it was decided they were not going to push the case to the Supreme Court because Anton and Scalia just passed away. Now consider the events that have occurred since March of 2016, when he got three new justices in the Supreme Court to replace Scalia, Kennedy, and Ginsburg. That logjam of dedicated progressive judges on the Supreme Court was broken. Or some of you may say, well, no, it wasn't, Bill, not really. Look what just happened in Texas. But, it, you know, you get what I'm saying. But for the first time in 70 years, there exists an arguably originalist and textualist majority on the Supreme Court. Judges who claim to interpret the Constitution as it was written. Not as they wish to use it to advance progressive policy. And Clarence Thomas closed the doors of the Heller decision when he wrote, wrote a very easy, clear decision explaining what the Second Amendment means and what it meant when it was adopted. And it is not the business of the Supreme Court to change the meaning, but to enforce the meaning as adopted. And it basically boils down to that restrictions are only legitimate if they're common and accepted at the time the Second Amendment was ratified. Fourteenth Amendment considerations do not come into play for federal laws and regulations. There were no federal restrictions on carrying weapons in post offices until 1972. Federal restrictions on carrying guns in post offices are obviously unconstitutional, as Judge Mizell found. Restrictions on federal employees are different. They may be controlled by labor law and union contracts. But it all boils down to one very simple thing. It doesn't stand up to Bruin. That's their biggest issue, that it doesn't 
stand up to Bruin. Now, why is this important? That's often a question I get. Why is it important that we be able to carry a gun into a post office? Well, here's the thing. Anywhere today in the United States where people are going to gather, that is a target in the new normal of the United States. We have a interior with 300 known uh, 300 known uh, terror watch list people, and that's the ones we know about, which, you know, my first thought would be, why aren't we rounding them up so we have 300 fewer, but we're not. We got 300 known that are in here, and 300 of them can do a lot of damage. I mean, all you have to look do is look at Chris Dorner. He was one guy in California, one guy. And he took the entirety of California law enforcement in L.A. and turned them on their head because they didn't. And so think about what 300 Chris Dorners could do. And Chris Dorner had the uh, he had the infantry capability of a Cub Scout. So I guess I'm going to take a moment here and go check my text messages. No telling what Mark is going to be sending me. So I'll be checking that. If you hear me crying softly, it's just because I'm not there. I'm here. But I enjoy being here. We'll be right back. This is this is Daily Defense. segment of Armed American Radio's Daily Defense is being brought to you by Daniel Defense. Visit DanielDefense.com. Now, back to the show. Now then, just a little inside baseball. I, I keep having these uh, these brain freezes in the middle when I'm trying to say, All right, you know, I'm trying to take us out really smooth and everything like, I got this, don't you guys worry about it. And I keep messing up the rejoinder because I have like four titles of radio shows flying around in my head right now. Three of them, which are mine. And I don't want to mess up Mark's. So uh, once again, welcome back to Armed American Radio's Daily Defense, where the host is currently sending me pictures of all the guns he gets to handle this coming week. And it's only Tuesday. Let's talk a little bit about the semantic theft that occurs that fuels most of what goes on in gun control. To understand this, what you have to first take into consideration is that perception is everything in politics. If somebody thinks like climate change right now, everybody's been told for quite a long time that we're going to be a burning ball of fire soon, that heat bad, even though cold is really bad, but heat, heat bad. We can't, and you know, and despite the fact that we know we've been through, I don't know how many ice ages, and after we come out of these ice ages, of course, the earth warms up. Despite all those facts, we're just, you know, we're still dealing with the World Economic Forum. They were up in there uh, having more fun and, you know, flying their private jets and not worrying about their carbon footprint at all. They're worried about yours. And all of it's based on semantics. Now, with gun control, what they've done is like that, that heartbreaking story 
where we were hearing about that kid that shot himself there. And we get this phrase, safe storage. Safe for whom? It is not a, the, the only reason to own a weapon in my world is for self-defense. Some people have them for hunting. Some people have them for competition. Uh, I have them for self-defense. All of my guns are geared towards having to use them for self-defense. Therefore, unless they are present and available, they are useless. And yet, we have this idea of safe storage foisted upon us. They, they, use the, they use the language, and then they use guilt. Well, if it saves one child's life. See, if you want to look at what they do, if you want to figure out while they're sitting out there being concerned about one child's life, go to your local Sephora store. That's a makeup place. And go in there and look at the tween little girls that are in there right now running around with hundreds of dollars worth of stuff in their little, in their little uh, baskets that they're going to try to get their mommy to buy because they saw it on social media. Because mommy, instead of being mommy, has handed the little darling an iPad. They have abdicated their role as parents to the iPad. So the iPad has TikTok on it, and they swipe through that, and they see the daily uh, makeup and outfit routine, and these little tween little girls that, you know, are 10, 11, uh, they want to look the part. And that's because the left is trying to push this perception that children are actually just little adults and can be treated as such, which leads to the sexualization of them. That's the other fun thing about what they do when they steal language. Every time they're motivated to actually steal the language and get you to move on something politically, it all involves you giving something up. So we have a plethora of uh, nice political agenda type terms that have been used semantically against you in, in the in the pro, you know in the process of life. Assault weapon, gun violence, right? Gunman. See, I'm a gunman. I carry a gun everywhere I go. That makes me a gunman. And in the event that, you know, somebody forced me into a armed self-defense situation, I'm really going to seem quite bad because they're going to get shot a lot because I've trained to do it. I have trained to do it. And I it is my intention if I am pushed and pressed into that, to, that's what I'm going to do. And yet, right, Daniel Penny talked about him. Dude comes dancing up to him, doing the moonwalk and, you know, doing the Michael Jackson <laughs> and all this other stuff and uh, talks about people going to die today. And this guy just snatches him up. And uh, he should be walking free right now today. We should be looking at him and calling him a hero because we don't know where that guy was going to stop. Just like George Floyd. We didn't know where he was going to stop. So. This is the thing about perception and the theft of language and uh, especially the whole thing about misinformation. Uh, me and Mr. Walters would be looked at as merchants of misinformation. Like when I tell you that when a armed citizen deals with is involved in armed self-defense, 2% of the time they shoot the wrong person. And but with the police, it's 12% of the time. 
And that would be I would be told that I, you, you would hear that I was dealing with misinformation, not that I was lying because I never see some. I never say that, hey, they're dealing in misinformation. I just say, oh, they're just liars. I'm dealing in misinformation because, uh, you know, they're going to go, well, you got to put it in context. OK, here's your context um, with a armed citizen. They don't have to think about what they're about to do. They're thrust into a situation where they are not going to think about it that much. They're going to do it. They're going to act. And then they're going to react to what they just did. With a police officer, he gets a call on a radio that says man with a gun. And he gets to drive for 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 15 minutes, however long it is. He gets to go through all of the stressors that he's being in, in preparation mentally as to what's going on with him. And when he gets there, he's going to be jacked. And one of the things that our hands instinctively do when that kind of we're going undergoing that kind of stress is ball up our fists. So when he decides to do something as intricate as grip a pistol and stick a finger into the trigger guard, then it's probably going to be almost it's going to take a lot of power and will on his part not to pull it. So that's where that comes from. But they would never tell you that part either. I'm just supplying misinformation. One time, and I was I was on Mark's show with him when we were discussing this, based upon the CDC numbers of three million defensive gun uses a day, that means eighty two hundred times today, people defended themselves with guns, and eighty two hundred times tomorrow they will, and eighty two hundred times yesterday they did. So, bear that in mind. Anytime you're looking at anything coming from a gun grabber or anybody anything coming from legacy media, and it sounds like they're against guns, they probably are. And the language is all designed to uh, mislead you. See, I'm not supplying misinformation to you. It's actually quite easy for me just to supply facts. And that's all I bring. That's all I bring. So, I myself, I'm going to be sitting here and uh, I guess I'll take a few more texts from Mr. Uh, from Mr. Uh, Walters, maybe he'll give me a call and give me some of his impressions on something. We'll find out. I expect him to call in sometime the next couple of days here, so we'll find out about that as well. But I'll be back with you tomorrow. This is Armed American Radio, Daily Defense. Prescription for Freedom with Mark Walters, presented by X Insurance. X Insurance on the Armed American Radio Network. Uh-huh.